Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. In the show this week, the Wellington Sevens returns. The breakers look unstoppable. The Phoenix are in squeaky bum time. And we meet a solo round-the-world sailor with a sobering message about the environment. The 12th edition of the Wellington Sevens IRB series kicks off this weekend. And while supercoach Gordon Titchens has claimed every honour going in the shorter form of rugby union, he's only won four times in the capital. Most coaches would give their eye teeth for that record, but the pressure does get intense for the men in black on their home paddock, amongst all the festivities that go along with the iconic tournament. Stephen Hewson joined the media scrum with the New Zealand coach. Well, Gordon, usual question when it comes to Wellington. Why, why is it so tough winning the, the Wellington one? I think it always is. I think there's just a lot of pressures that the, that the players are under. It's a lot of excitement at the same time. And we find with all teams, England, uh, even South Africa in the last tournament, they really battle in their own tournament, even though you've got the support there. I think the players feel under the microscope from a really passionate supporting public. But in saying that, it's, it's one of the best tournaments to win as well. And, and if anyone can get you up in your own crowd camp, I'm really excited because there's seven new players here that have never played Wellington. So exciting for them and as long as they can handle that pressure. And, and certainly it makes you become a, a better rugby player and you learn from the environment. The real key around the success, I think, will be the, the five core players, experienced players, even though one of them hasn't played here in Wellington. They've come back from Delhi under a lot of pressure to win a gold medal and uh, they did that. And uh, So helping those young players will certainly assist in our performance. Is there anything that you sort of do to try and, I suppose, combat that, that pressure? As a coach, what do you try to... Well, you, you try and make them be, you know, let them be themselves, let them relax, even though in, you know, it's churning over in their, in their stomachs and the nerves, etc. But um, once the ball's been kicked off, that generally goes. And they'll, so I've had the first game and a little bit of a taste. Believe it or not, the, the seven guys that I've got have all got a sevens X factor that they could turn out to be a star. I mean, you've got David Raikuna, who's got a lovely step, quick feet, and he's a Fijian, he knows the game. You've got young Declan O'Donnell, who's also very explosive, played very well in his first time against. England and uh, he's only a youngster also you've got Bryce Heem from Northland, he's very quick and Buxton Popwally from Wellington, he's got a lovely step and all of those players will be competing to actually make the starting side and uh, they'll put pressure on the incumbents but they all, they certainly have that expectation, young Scott Curry he's very very quick and uh, from Ripperar in the Bay of Plenty so he's also another one that's, that's ruined to get out there so what I enjoy about it is they're really keen you know, they've got a great attitude and um, and what comes their way, I'm sure they'll give it their best shot. It looks like conditions are going to be a little challenging, a lot of wind and maybe a bit of rain. Yeah, there will be. We've been training a lot in the wind, you know, and obviously this week, so it'll probably assist in some ways. But, um, you know, Wellington on a fine day is a, a pretty good place to play and it's quite good in there. You're going to get a swirling run sometimes anyway, So, but it's the same for all teams and uh, you've got to play and adapt to the conditions. Does the rain or in particular, does that, is that a leveller or... DJ mentioned it might also provide a bit more sort of contact areas which might suit 
yeah. New Zealand a bit more. Yeah, team loves the contact areas. We've certainly got some some good forwards that can handle the contact, and it, it may work in our favour. And uh, in some cases, it may work in other teams' favour as well. But it is a real leveller. The conditions, it's adapting to them, and causing a, a blustery, wet day. It's about how you handle it, the ball itself, and and perform at the set pieces, which is really important. And you take your opportunities in these conditions. But physically, we certainly that's the type of game that we enjoy playing. And and if it is wet, it will become more of a physical game. Sevens coach Gordon Titchens there. And this is Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Richard Wayne. Basketball veteran Paul Hinare has been with the New Zealand Breakers since day one. And the 31-year-old guard is in his eighth, final and most successful season with the Auckland-based side who compete in the Australian League. The Breakers are playoffs bound with a bullet, top of the league by two wins and with an outstanding record on the road where they've lost just twice. After the playoffs mid-year, the Tall Black is heading into coaching with his home province, Hawke's Bay, though Hanare will continue as a player for at least the next season at the Hawks. I spoke with him after they impressively snapped the Taipans unbeaten home run at the Snake Pit in Cairns. Paul Hanare, how well are the Breakers travelling? Just generally, the feeling in the camp at this point in the season? Obviously, we're feeling pretty good sitting at the top of the table, which is where we want to be. But, you know, obviously going up to Cairns and, and getting a win... And the fashion we did it, being down 20 at the half, playing in a place that you know they hadn't lost all year, it was actually a bit of a confidence booster for us because the games we have lost this year when we've gotten down, the Perth game and the Townsville game and the Wollongong game, we haven't been able to break back into those big leads. And to be able to do that, although we're feeling good about what we're doing, uh, also gave us confidence that if we do get down that much, we, we can come back. The good thing about this team is that we never panic. You know, Even when we're, we're down, down big, going back to those games we lost, we, we still never really panicked. Um, the results didn't obviously didn't go our way those times, but you know, Cairns was no different. We we addressed a few things as a team at halftime before the coaching staff even came in. You know, we we're basically talking about the same things that Andre um, talked about. So we, we knew where we were going wrong, and we, we still felt that we could get back in the game. Just a, a confidence builder for us, and, and just a, a sign of the, the character and, and true grit that we that we have as a team. Is it more that you people have to focus on yourselves rather than your opposition? Because on the ladder, you're actually streets ahead of everybody else. But I suppose it's keeping your own standards up rather than focusing on the, your opposition. Yeah, it's a bit of a balancing act. You still have to do your, your job and, and, and scout the, the teams accordingly. But, you know, we, we've spoken about this year. You know, we're at the position we are without putting in a complete performance yet this year. And that's a promising sign for us. You know, we, we still haven't put a... a a 40-minute game together where we've just clicked on all cylinders. So, yes, we still have to, you know, concentrate on ourselves and focus on the things we're doing well. But at the same time, you, you still do have to do your homework a little bit and, and, and make sure you're prepared because the, the moment you sort of underestimate your opponent, that's, that's when they jump on you. And for you personally, is this the culmination? Obviously, it's the last year of your career with the Breakers. And you're heading back home to Hawke's Bay after this. Is it for you personally a culmination of, of all the years that you've spent in basketball, how the team's travelling? Does that sort of connect with you personally, how the team's travelling at this point alongside where you're travelling with your career? Yeah, for sure. You know, obviously... Been, been with the Breakers since day one and, and seen what the club's gone through and what the team's gone through in terms of results and issues in terms of how we've played and performance and results and all those sorts of things. So it's from that point of view, it's very pleasing personally that you know we're finally a, a true powerhouse in, in the NBL. To be able to do it in such a, a short time, you know, eight years is, is still a, a reasonably young club. So again, yeah, for me personally, it, it's it's good and you know, being my last year, I'm just I'm loving it. You know, if this. If my last year was was a 
you know, the record was flipped and we had, say, a Sydney record, it would be, it'd be pretty depressing. So this is definitely a, a good way to go out. But by no means are we, we finished, myself personally and as a team. We know there's a long way to go and, and, and a few things we need to do before we, we uh, achieve the goal that we're all striving for. When it comes to playoff time, will you be going, we're not going to lose this one, this is my last shot at this title, guys, come on? Uh, not really. I think kind of those sorts of things go, go without say. You know, even though for me it's my last shot, every single person from, from the front office to the coaching staff to management team, every single player, we want to win. So there's no sort of real extra motivation that, that's needed for me or for the team. So you know, it's a good place to be. You know, yes, we're going to be desperate, but we're not going to panic about the whole thing. You talked about getting a perfect game. What would that involve? I think transition defence was a problem maybe recently. What have you been working on to, to, to get that perfect game going? It's more just consistency. You know, we've, um, we've had good halves, we've had good quarters. It's just been able to execute a game plan over the course of the game. You know, we're very good in patches and defensive transition like you talk about or just our defence full stop or our offensive ex- execution you know we, we are very good at times and that's when we break away from teams and, and build our leads and usually it's in the second half where we find our depth sort of takes over but I, I guess again there's just being consistent over 40 minutes not, not waiting to a down 10-15 points before we flick the switch and being keyed on from, from the get go and being able to keep that intensity and, and focus for, for that full 40 minutes are you guys talking about the championship? Because, I mean, every team wants to win everything every season, but you guys have it in your sights now. Is, is it something that you fellas are talking about in training before matches? Actually, it's not. You know, Andre's instilled on us from very early that, you know, we take it game by game, and it's very boring for, for the media and the public that we look at it that way. But it's, it's the way we think is best suited for us, that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves. We'd be kidding ourselves if we, if we didn't think that we... We can win the championship if we haven't thought about you know what it's going to be like for us that haven't won a championship. You know we do think about these sorts of things, and you know there's the odd comment here and there, but by no means are we focusing on that. We're just focusing on day to day, getting the wins, and making sure we're trying to hit the form that's needed to win the championship. That's Paul Hinare. The Andre he talked about is Breakers coach Andre Lamanis. And in case you were wondering, the Sydney record that Hinare is happy to avoid in his final ANBL season is that of the Sydney Kings. They're dead last on the ladder with just three wins and 15 losses, or a 1-6 in six record. The Breakers are 14-3 and three and over 82%. This is extra time. Another local side pushing for a postseason are the Wellington Phoenix, though unlike the Breakers in the ANBL, the A-League hasn't proved such a pushover. The Phoenix's playoffs campaign is heading down to the wire. They're currently in the crucial top six, but need some rare away points to make sure of a spot in the finals. And they've won just once outside the capital this season. Two out of three of their remaining games are on the road, starting with Adelaide on Saturday night. Midfielder Marco Rojas is just 19, but he seems on track for an all-whites jersey, and he's in no mood for their poor away form to continue. Joe Porter spoke with Marco Rojas about his breakout season. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, ever since I was a little kid at all, I wanted to be a professional footballer and um, to do it in New Zealand as a dream come true. And uh, luckily for me, it's all been going well and hopefully it keeps going well. And what, what do you think of the Wellington Phoenix crowd? Obviously, you've got to know some of the Yellow Fever supporters so far this year. They tend to really give the team a lift at home. Yeah, they're unbelievable at home. The sound that they make, it's just unbelievable. And like some of the games, I think we wouldn't be able to get through them if it wasn't for them. I think that's why we're always good at home because we've always got that extra boost from the crowd. 
being the young boy in the team, the greenhorn, so to speak, do you have any sort of extra roles you have to take up around here? I saw you having to pack up some of the some of the uh, goalposts there and take down some of the nets. A few rookie duties. Yeah, me, James, and Pavlovich have to grab the goals, the bottles, and then on the away trips we help with the bags and stuff. But <laughs> nothing major. Just enough to to make sure that you know you are the young boy in the camp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And in terms of your development as a footballer this year, have you, have you feel like you've taken some steps in the right direction? You've come on and developed as a player? Yeah, I feel I've picked up a lot of things playing, actually now playing games. I'm still learning and you can probably see that in the games that I play, but hopefully I'll continue to learn and I'll fix up what I need to fix up and I'll get there. Obviously the Phoenix are a daunting prospect for any team coming over to Westpac Stadium. You have built quite a fortress there. Travelling has always been a little bit more difficult for the Phoenix. Obviously being in sort of your first full real season and getting a bit of a taste of travelling around Australia. I mean, what is it in your mind you think that makes it so difficult for, to travel in the A-League coming from New Zealand? Uh, I don't know. I guess it's just the plane trips. They kind of take it out on you, but that's really it's just another game. The day of the game is just normal to what we would do here and I think we've just been a bit unlucky sometimes. Sometimes we haven't played that well, but yeah, I guess it takes a little bit out of you, but you don't really want to have too many excuses. Three games left, two are away, the next two are away. If you get a win over there, you'll pretty much secure yourselves in the playoff race. I mean, good time to break that away from Hoodoo. Yeah, it is, and we're, we're going to go for three points in every game, and I can't see why we can't, we can't grab those three points. Yeah, Coach Ricky Herbert said you're going to come out and be quite aggressive against an Adelaide side who you haven't had the best of luck over there in the past with. I mean, I mean, you obviously stick to a similar game plan to what has been successful for you all season, but you are going to throw the kitchen sink at these games. Yeah, of course we are, and um, we'll just we'll just attack as much as we can and hope that um, we get the goals. We've beaten Adelaide before, and hopefully we can do it away from home. I mean, best case scenario, you get a win against Adelaide, those three points, it means the game against Sydney is, is slightly less relevant. But uh, getting one point, do you think, from these games, a couple of draws would still be ideal? We want to go 4-3, and I'm sure Ricky feels the same way, and I'm sure we'll go out and attack and do our best to bring home six points from two games. Adelaide are a very good team. They've got a lot of very good players, Flores, Cassio, Dodd. There's a, there's a lot of good players. We're just going to have to try and contain them and then attack for our own strength which are out wide and through the middle and I'm sure we'll be able to deal with it and hopefully we all turn up to play the game. It looks a bit of a difficult prospect for you guys to climb any higher than sixth on the table for the playoff race. That of course gets you into the playoff mix but it means you don't have any home fixtures like they did last year which made it a little bit easier for the run for the final so really if you do come in at sixth it really is the perfect time to arrest that, that away run of poor form. Yeah it'd be nice going in because of course six isn't ideal, it's good to be in the playoffs but it's not ideal and um, it'll be good if we can break the hoodoo around not winning the away games and hopefully it happens this trip, it'll be nice. Yes it would be nice, I'm sitting here in my Phoenix shirt right now, Marco Rojas there. And finally for this episode of Extra Time we go round the world. The four sailors left in the Velux solo round-the-world challenge are about to leave Wellington for the third leg to South America. That's one man per boat, almost 50,000 kilometres over five legs, taking nine months. New Zealand has plenty of history in ocean racing, but not really in solo racing. Our man Barry Guy went to Queen's Wharf in Wellington and caught up with the Canadian skipper Derek Hatfield, who's attempting his third solo round-the-world race. The 58-year-old was successful in a similar race, though he lost a mast at Cape Horn. He also tried the non-stop version, but had to pull out because of mechanical problems. 
Barry's first question to Derek was, why? It's the competition first. Uh, years ago, I started sailing, uh, not as a young person, but uh, started sailing as, uh, as a adult, young adult and uh, immediately gravitated towards um, single-handed racing, basically because of the sense of accomplishment that you get from doing all of this yourself. You set the boat up. When you're out there, you're alone, and uh, you have to do all the tactics, do all the weather analysis, and handle the boat, and manage all the, the different aspects of, of racing. Then there's nutrition and food and, and sleep to, to deal with. And when you get to the finish line and all that has gone quite well, um, the sense of accomplishment is huge. You know, I, I, I've never climbed Mount Everest. I have no desire to do that, but I assume it's something similar. You know, where you have to, a major obstacle and you have to overcome it. And, and it's all details and it goes on for long periods of time. And the goal, of course, I think all the skippers are AAA type persons. You know, they relish the, the goal, the finish line. So is that one of the major hurdles, is that you have to do everything yourself, and more or less it's 24 hours, I'm assuming? Well, exactly. In this race, we have five legs and stops, but uh, we have probably 135, 140 days on the water, but spread over seven and a half, eight months. So it's kind of an intensity that goes on. Each race, each leg is like a race within the race overall. So you come in here and you have to set the boat up again and you know you get to relax a little bit but that's actually much more difficult um, than say the Vendée Globe where you just leave France and you go around the world in 100 days and come back again but once you're in the rhythm you can go for 100 days here the rhythm is broken all the time and it's a really intense we call a motion sprint so it's five five sprints so it's five races spread over seven and a half months so it's quite a quite a marathon to me, to Peter, the, one of the most difficult things would be uh, the fact that you're on the go 24 hours a day, sleeping and, you know, listening out for this, that and the other thing. And, uh. Yes, it's, uh, you know, in, we, we do studies on this and uh, probably uh, if you were to put a full crew on board the boat and race the boat like a Volvo campaign or something or, or with a full crew, you could probably raise the performance of the boat and, and everything up to 100%. But we're really only operating at about 75% because you obviously have to sleep. As soon as you go to sleep, the performance of the boat starts to degrade. That's why we're only catnapping in 20 minutes, 30 minutes at a time. So you're constantly monitoring the performance of the boat. But then you have to, you know, bodily functions and uh, all the different things going on. So you have to monitor those. So if you can raise the performance of, say, from 75 to, say, 78, you're probably going to be at the front of the fleet. I was so surprised about how big the boat is, and I'm assuming there's a lot to do, you know, to, yes. to cover it. I mean, it's, it's what, 60 foot? Uh, yes, the 60 foot class is the class of choice for single-handed racing, and this has evolved over many years of, uh, uh, and many editions of this race. And now, of course, the Amoka class, there are probably about 50 or 60 of these boats in existence, and they do a series of races different parts of the world, mostly from France. The French dominate this, this sport, unfortunately, but the boats are 60 feet. There's nothing bigger and there's nothing smaller. They're all 60 feet, and they're designed for one purpose, and that is to be raced single-handed. So, but a lot of details going on there, constantly monitoring and upgrading and maintaining the boat at all, all times. So it, it's a lot of work. It's, it's as much work or more work than one person can handle, so it's how much uh, energy you have to uh, aggressively go at it and push the boat. So, so that's the key, is it? You know, as you say, gaining those couple of percent 
looking at the forecast and yes. those sorts of things and tactical decisions. That that's, is the difference between going faster and slow? Exactly. The good skippers, the ones that are usually at the front of the feet, are, are excellent meteorologists. They know the weather. Uh, they're good sailors. They're uh, good tactics-wise. They know themselves, uh, motivated, very motivated, and uh, psychologically they're very well-founded, and uh, they're just A-types and going for the finish line. The goal is the finishing uh, is the goal. It obviously takes a, a special person. Tell me, do you get lonely? Um, there are times, you know, when, when, when you miss your family. Um, communications are so good on these boats now. Like I have access to the internet, I have video, I can send pictures, I can pick up the phone and talk to my family anytime I want. So the days are gone when you, you know, when these races first started happening, you would, uh, competitors would leave the start line and never be heard from again until the finish line. Well, here, every six hours, there's a update off the boat and there's constant video and constant uh, things happening all the time. So communications are great. In fact, the phone rings four or five, six times a day. People calling, uh, the media calling, uh, the sponsors calling, the British committee. So it's a constant, uh, and that's part of our game as well. You know, we have to, um, we have to be very media savvy to try and uh, fulfill the sponsors' requirements and, and the race requirements because this is all this is all about sponsorship and you know it's a it's a professional race. Mm. And you time for each leg. I mean, the next leg is the longest. I, I understand. I mean, well, it was up until the finish line stop went from Salvador to Punta, and so that lopped off 1,500 miles at the other end of the leg. So it's actually a little bit shorter now. So the last leg that we just finished, I think, is now deemed to be the longest. So what is it, was the Southern Ocean or the next one that you're gone, uh, going to go on the, the most sort of difficult? Well, for me, yes, Cape Horn uh, is kind of like the pinnacle uh, of the race. Once you get around Cape Horn safely and get into the South Atlantic and start going north again, once you're above 40 degrees north, you can kind of breathe easy because now you're, you're out of the south. Cape Horn, of course, you're locked into... Basically, you have to round Cape Horn, and you have to go all the way down to 56 degrees south. Cape Horn is treacherous and has its reputation because uh, of the huge storms there and the fact that uh, the bottom of the ocean comes up from thousands of feet deep. And, you know, they have reported waves of 120 feet at Cape Horn because of that shelf, and all the wind and the waves that circle Antarctica in the Southern Ocean go through that gap between South America and Antarctica, which is only 600 miles across. So it's a real uh, narrow, dangerous, dangerous place. So for us, for me, because I pitch-pulled the boat in 2002 there, it's uh, kind of unfinished business. So I'm hoping to get around there safely, and, and I can relax a little bit, you know. I understand you're well aware of the environment and how things have changed uh, since you know you, you first started doing this. Yes, no, it's um, it's something that people ask about a lot, and I guess um, I feel qualified in, in talking about it. And I'm not an environmentalist or not a scientist or anything. It's just that we sit so close to the water and we're constantly looking and watching things. And uh, one of my former careers was a police officer, so I'm a trained observer type thing. And I've always taken an interest in wildlife and love to watch the dolphins and the whales the same you know i grew up in a maritime country and uh near the water near the ocean and always watched the ocean evolve and um, you know in the last 15 years it has changed so drastically and it's really shocking how fast it's changing because now you can and i remember my first transatlantic race from say halifax uh, to england and um, daily visits from dolphins and not daily sightings of whales but almost daily and off the coast of Newfoundland, up over the Grand Banks, you know, when the fisheries was in full swing, 
there's thousands and thousands of uh, mammals and, and birds and uh, fishing boats, of course, and, and dolphins. I remember coming across a, a pod of dolphins. It had to be 600, 800 of them there. Don't see that anymore. Very rare now to see a whale. You know, it's hard to believe that they're all gone. Where have they gone? Uh, they're, they're missing in action. And uh, so people ask me about this, and I, I, I talk about it, the fact that they're just not there anymore. So I'm assuming, I have no scientific fact, but they're gone. Because uh, I was talking to a gentleman here in Wellington, one of the kayakers here, and he said, you know, 10 years ago, you, you used to see pods of dolphins come into the bay here, like 20, 30, 40, 100 of them come in. He says, we haven't seen that in years. And I don't see any dolphins. From Cape Town to here, I saw one dolphin. And that was a, a, just at the mouth of the Cook Strait. So you're more likely to get hit by a container or something like that, are you? Exactly. I do, I do have to say that um, uh, we, I think we're doing much better on the pollution side, uh, i.e. plastics, because 10, 15 years ago it used to be horrendous. Every day there'd be plastic bags and buckets and, and old containers and barrels and stuff floating around, you know. We are getting much better at that. You don't see as much pollution anymore as much plastic and garbage. We know it's there, but it's slowly de degrading. Of course, the fishing industry is totally devastated as well, so you don't get as many loose traps and lines and things like that. So from that point, we're doing we're doing uh, much better. But I think we've done major damage to the to the fisheries and the, and the oceans with the, with the sea life. So you're looking forward to getting started again? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting um, around Cape Horn. Uh, it's a... Um, you know, it's a, it's a bit, it's a nervous time because um, Cape Horn can be so miserable and so, and because you're trapped there, you have to go through there. You can't avoid the storm. If you happen to arrive there in a big storm, there's not much you can do about it other than just kind of tough it out. And toughen it out in these boats, uh, even though that boat looks big, it's, in a 60-foot wave, it's not very big. And uh, at Cape Horn, uh, it feels very small. That's solo round-the-world sailor Derek Hatfield. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome. You can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz, sport at radionz.co.nz. You can get the latest sports news anytime on our website, while we'll be back with the next web-only Extra Time show next week. I'm Richard Wayne. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.